Um, I started uh, digging clams in the St. George River at the age of 14 with my brother, who was 12. Then we moved down the river as time went on. My father bought a groundfish boat, and uh, we went on that. Then I got too old to do that anymore, but wanted to stay in the business some way. And uh, poor Clyde Freshcats was kind of the solution to that, or an idea of a solution anyway. So on the ground fishing, was it age or was it the, the situation that ground fishing found in the sense that there were no fish to catch? Well, there were fish, but it was getting, age was a lot of it. The fact that we weren't making a lot of money was part of it, but uh, I wasn't willing to give up on it either. And not meaning just keep beating my head against the wall, but make change through what I've written about in the book. And, and what's the state of ground fishing now in the state? Then? There's lots of fish and no fishermen. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. So one thing we can derive from that is if you eliminate fishermen, you get more fish. <laughs> As opposed to eliminating the fish and having too many fishermen all, right. all complaining and grouching on the shore. It's changed now because uh, back then, I mean, they were making attempts at various quota schemes, days at sea, things like that. None of it seemed to be working well for us. I don't know what it did in other regions, but we weren't seeing the returns that we thought we should have been. I mean, there were a few spikes where... We thought, yeah, this is it. This is success. And then it would draw back down. But uh, for the most part, we made a good living. So poor Clyde Fresh Catch was, didn't exist. It was a figment of your imagination. You dreamed it up. It started with the Midcoast Fishermen's Association. And then we started our Midcoast Fishermen's Co-op. And then uh, my brother and I and his wife and my wife at the time I think it was Claire. Was that long ago? Yes, it was. <laughs> We've been together for 21 years now. But uh, we went down to a meeting at GMRI. We kept going to these meetings called Fish Tank, yeah. where people would present different ideas. And this one, this particular one was they brought in a farmer talking about CSA shares and the idea of transitioning that into fishing, sell fish shares. And that's how Port Clyde Fresh Catch started. We were throwing whole fish in bags, and uh, bags bags that are illegal now, that they weren't then. But anyway, uh, we had a glut of them, enough of them. And we'd take them around to various places, churches, Belfast Co-op, whoever would have us on Sunday, and hand out the whole fish. And people loved it. They signed up for it. Yeah, They'd subscribe to it. Yeah. So how did it progress? Well, we found out, they started, we started to get some calls from restaurants. Hey, can we get some of this? And then it was like, you know, we'd really like to have fillets. So we had to learn how to do all that and turn it into more of a processing business. So you process, you fillet, you, you pack, yeah. vacuum seal? Yeah, we can, yeah. Yeah, and then and then you it goes to CSA still, or is it? There's one left. Really? Willow Pond Farm in Sabatis. Mm -hmm. That's the only one we have. Then how do you, where, where does the rest of the product go? How is it? Uh, most of it goes to like food co-ops, seafood markets. We've had to pivot a lot of times. I like to tell people I've had to pivot so much that I get dizzy. <laughs> but uh, we started out with shrimp. Shrimp was, we were frustrated over the price of shrimp. We're, we're going to process our own shrimp. We'll show little shrimp buyers. And, uh, it's not as easy as you think, but uh, then the shrimp went away. We did that for a few years, but we didn't know anything about marketing or uh, figuring out the cost of product. Or We didn't have any markets. We didn't have money. We didn't have a lot of things, mostly knowledge. Isn't that amazing, though? Isn't it, It's a situation where you have no money, you have no markets, you have no knowledge, but you have the will. Uh, because that's what you do. You're a fisherman. And that's what it takes. And that's what it takes to make any business run. Yeah. And it turns out that you you were an innovator. 
you became someone who broke the mold and showed another way and still are, are still doing that. Yeah, one of the one of the most gratifying things is seeing these things pop up all over the place. There's a lot of them. Some have been more successful than others. Right. Um, a lot of them taken different tracks. I mean, we certainly had to take a different track from when we started. Now our main business is crab meat, just because there's a glut of crabs. And one of the best things about crab meat is almost nobody else deals with that. Right. So you've pretty much got the market to yourself. Well, there's labor intensity there. Yeah, there is. A lot of it. Yeah. Is that still, uh, do you still recruit your pickers locally? Mm-hmm. Are they the ladies of the neighborhood? Some of them. Yeah. Yeah. The ones you can convince come down. Yeah. <laughs> Some only stay, I mean, we keep it pretty loose. They can stay for a couple hours or they can stay all day or whatever. It's a different way of making a quilt. You know, you're not sitting around sewing, you're sitting around picking. Yeah. But the gossip is key. Yeah. Everybody's There's talking. plenty of that. Plenty of that going on. You can tell when they're really working because nobody's saying anything. <laughs> yeah. Tony, your turn. How did you come to it? So when I moved to Port Clyde in 2006, um, I think we pretty quickly learned about the CSA. Maybe you guys started in 2007. I feel like it was soon after we got here. And I was in this funny place um, trying to figure out what to do. I wanted to do a story. I was thinking about graduate school. I didn't want to pay for graduate school. I thought just give myself a project. And I started reading more and more about what they were doing at Port Clyde Fresh Catch. And it was a, it was a twofold thing. I was inspired by what they were doing, uh, what Glenn and, and the fishermen in Port Clyde were doing in terms of saying, Hey, you know, this, this model isn't working any longer. Can we make a new model? And I'd also been gifted the book Daring to Look about the photographic work of Dorothea Lang. And she just, I don't know. It's a, it's a gorgeous book that someone at MIT, a professor at MIT put together. And so I called Glenn or showed up down there. I think we'd signed up for the CSA. So we were picking up fish, but finally I sort of posed the question very pointedly, you know, would you mind if I came poking around with my camera? This seems like an important moment in time to, to document. And I don't know. I think I have said to Glenn in the past, like, well, I figured it was either like, this pivotal moment or the end of an era. And Glenn was like, it was never the end of an era. Like you've been very clear about that, which was cool. I'm not sure I knew that necessarily to begin with when I started the work. And then I just started like showing up on the dock when they were offloading fish. Glenn would call me and say, Hey, you know, I'm pretty sure this would be a great photograph. I'm steaming crabs. Come on down my brother, we've got the boat hauled out. My brother's cleaning the bottom. Come on down. So it actually ended up becoming very collaborative very quickly because Glenn, I, I don't know, you sort of had a, I don't, we've never really talked about that necessarily. Like if you trusted me, I mean, I feel like we developed a trusting relationship pretty early on. Um, mostly it was me learning how to stay out of the way. I'm sure that had something to do with it, that I was like able to get in and take pictures and not, screw up what was happening. Well, one of the challenges of of this conversation is that we're using an audio platform to talk about things that we cannot see. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you if you would just look at one picture. It happens to be the first one in the book. It's extremely beautiful photograph, and it's incredibly evocative to me. It's called uh, Fishing Vessel Skipper. It was taken in January, so the vessel is hauled, hauled in the old-fashioned way. And that may be your brother painting or scraping. Yeah, I sent her a text message. Come see this. Come down here. I'll tell you, we're going to clean on the bottom of the boat. You want to get this. So tell me what you saw. So I saw, first of all, it was it was not a warm day. Um, that was January 2013. I'm pretty sure that was a very cold January. So I think, I, I mean, I was impressed by the size, the scale of Skipper hauled out. I, I have to be honest. For me, when I'm looking through the viewfinder, I work with a two and a quarter Yashica medium format. When I'm looking through the viewfinder, first of all, what I see and what the camera sees is slightly different because there are two lenses. And what I'm generally looking at is a moment of interest that feels theatrical to me. But this ends up being very theatrical. It ends up being sort of 
the rule of thirds, the black, the light, the shade in between, the sun behind the, the stern of the boat. But I'm always sort of looking for the subtle theatrics of the moment. I don't know. I guess I'm also looking for shape. But I honestly, like, I didn't see that that image until a few months later. I was going back through my film, and I was like, you know, I think I like that. I think I need to see that a little bit bigger and see see what's going on. Well, theatrical it is, and beyond the immediacy of the image, the document in and of itself. In my view, this sums up so much in terms of the scale of the ocean the scale of the tool that we must have to essentially respond to the ocean, and the scale of the small human being dwarfed by not just the vessel, but dwarfed by the sea itself, that is inherent in this photograph. It puts everything in its proper order, in a way. Mm -hmm. And um, I, this is the first photograph I think I ever saw of yours, and I was just stopped in my tracks by it. So the process of unfolding and making the book itself, did Glenn write to the photographs? Did you photograph to Glenn's thoughts? How did, how did that work? We met, I can't remember if it was a phone call or in person, I think. I think you came down to the office and said, hey, I want to do a book of my pictures, but I want you to do the writing because if I do it, it's going to sound like the evening news. So I just started writing little things. Well, I asked, I said, what do you what do you want me to write about? She said, just everything you've been doing. So there it is. That's a pretty courageous thing to do. Mm -hmm. in, in my world, a white paper is as terrifying as an angry sea. <laughs> so for you to I sit down. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you choose your tools accordingly, but nonetheless. Because I had a little uh, break to work on it too, and I was sick. I was in the hospital for part of it. The the vampires chapter. Well, let's come back to that. Yeah, but uh, I'm going to interject here too, just flesh out that story just a little bit, because what had happened was there were Penobscot Marine Museum showed yeah. a bunch of the photographs and they asked me for an artist statement. And as I was doing that, I was like, you know, I'd really love for Glenn to be included in that statement because I felt like it had been collaborative. There was a point to all of this and it had as much to do with, with his work. And so he wrote this little blurb and I remember there was, you got philosophical really fast in a really short paragraph. So I also had a suspicion that Glenn doing the writing was going to be really fun because he he just has a way of thinking that I enjoy and a way of writing it. And I was, I was nervous. What had happened was in all the times that Glenn and I would meet and share stories and he would tell me what was going on. And then, you know, we'd say, oh, well, so-and-so from Channel 6 is coming down and they're doing a story and... Maybe you should come down. And I went down and met with a gal. And it didn't matter what happened. The news always ended up coming back around to the fishermen being vilified for overfishing. It didn't matter what Glenn tried to say about what they were doing. It always ended up being a story about the fishermen overfishing. And I didn't necessarily feel like, like I was looking at the story and I was hearing Glenn speak to it, but... I didn't necessarily feel like I had all of the history at my fingertips the way he does to really articulate, like, no, we are trying to change something. So that's that was also the reason I really, I between his little artist statement, which maybe he didn't quite recognize as, it was quite special in what he said. And then also this feeling like it felt unfair that no matter what he said, media continued to turn it into something that it wasn't. It needed to be said from the horse's mouth. Did that uh, frustrate you? Did that make you want to write it down? Did that make you want to argue it stronger and differently than you had in the past? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. My strategy is just keep being relentless. <laughs> so they'll either understand after a while or they won't. Well, you were also doing it, too. I mean, there's yeah. a difference between the word and the deed. Was that the trip we took to Searsport? We had, like, four people show up? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I would yeah. start. That was right before I got sick. 
yeah. I was starting to go off the rails a little bit then too in my head. We can talk about that later. Well, let's follow the book a little bit. Let's just talk to follow the structure of the book, which I think is ingenious. Let's start with uh, the title, Caught, Time, Place, Fish. Caught has a double meaning. We are caught in a time and a place and an ecosystem that's endemic to them both. And there has to be a kind of condition out of which one's personal responses emerge in a situation like that. Were you caught because you were uh, the only thing you knew was fishing? I suppose there was part of that. I mean, you really don't know what, the, what tomorrow's going to bring, just from that perspective. But uh, I never felt helpless, you know, like there was no way out. If it uh, fell apart, I'd just move on and do something else. Right, right. Yeah. But the uh, but at the at, at the same time, you come from a tradition of fishers. Your family were fishermen. No, no, not really. Not really. So <laughs> My you, brother and I were the first ones. Really, they were uh, sea captains and stonecutters. Mm-hmm. A connection. Farmers. Yeah. 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 All, from all from the area. Yeah. All caught up. All caught up in uh, deep traditions. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a product of this region. Right? Yeah. 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 We are speaking today with Glenn Libby and Tony Small on fishing and fisheries as essential elements of the culture of Maine. I'm Peter Neal, host of Conversations from the Pointed Furs on WERU-FM 89.9 on your dial. Community Radio in Blue Hill, Maine. Then there is, of course, the, the idea of time. That until a certain point, there was not the time. Conventional operation was good enough. The time was okay. You, nobody was saying that we were running out of time. We're running out of fish. There was no urgency necessarily to change. I mean, that was a big impetus for a lot of this, because you could see it dropping down. We'll talk about that a little bit. You know, I remember when we first started fishing, there was a lot more fish. Now, I don't know if that was the way that it was supposed to be, or if that was an aberration where the fish just all showed up over a period of time, and before that there wasn't many, I don't know. I've read historical data where more codfish were caught in Frenchman's Bay in a year than (laughs) what they figure is in the whole Gulf of Maine now. So Mm -hmm. if you base it on that, then yeah, there was depletion. And you could see it. And stories from guys that used to go in places they used to fish just out here. And we didn't catch fish there anymore. So you could see all that moving offshore further. Mm -hmm. And uh, the boats got bigger because they had to be. And uh, the inshore grounds didn't get worked as much. Pretty soon not at all because there wasn't nothing there. But So in a funny way, the place got bigger. As the fishing inshore is limited... The need is expanded dimensionally. You have to get, you have to go out farther. You have to go out overnight. You have to go, yeah. you need a different size vessel. You need different gear. Uh, you need all that kind of change that turns it from, a, say, an artisanal fishery to an industrial fishery. And then that suddenly wasn't available anymore. No, and then what you what was an industrial fishery turns into more of an artisanal fishery <laughs> because there's not many left. I just happy to be around to see the changes. That's all, you know. And the fish themselves have changed. Species have changed, have they not? I mean, the water temperatures. Well, I can tell you one thing: there's a lot more haddock around now than I ever saw in my entire career. So that's a good thing. The redfish have been fished out of the Gulf of Maine a few times, and now they're everywhere. <laughs> Hake have made a big comeback, but there's no one there to catch them. <laughs> For, I think the biggest part of it is people are making so much money at lobster, and they don't bother with it. So what about the, the shrimp? What about the airlines? What about the mackerel? I mean, what, right. about, what about sardines? Yeah, well, it depends on who you talk to. I mean... Guys are seeing sardines, then you have to start digging into science. Is the science right? You kind of have to homogenize everything and try to find a blend. And that's the hard part. If you just, if you only focus on science, 
you're going to miss something. If you only focus on the fishing, you're going to miss something. You're going to kind of try to put the two together and come up with what's really happening. Well, it's also interesting that ground fisheries, you're not in search of a single species. You have, no. you have multiple opportunity for harvest in different markets, therefore. Yeah. I mean, we do learn over time what a different species inhabit. I don't know if there's too many people left that know these things now or even how to build nets or rig the gear. But uh, we learn them. You know, you go here, you catch dabs, you go here, you catch gray sole, go here, you get cod, and different times of the year, too. You learn when the hate command, the cod command, and different things like that. There's a there's a progression of your essays here with their titles. Several of them, I think, are wonderful ones. Uh, complaining as inspiration. What's that? That is the definition of a co-op. <laughs> A couple people do all the work and everybody else complains. No, uh, no. It's I mean, you can either join the complainers and throw up your hands and give up, or you can say I'm going to show them and be relentless. And you either show them or you don't, but at least you were relentless. And another chapter is dueling plans. Did it did somehow two plans suddenly come in conflict with one another in your mind? There was there's the industrial model which some fight tooth and nail keep going all the time and and you know in some regions that's probably a good idea maybe you need that I don't know I wouldn't want to go off on George's bank with lobster boats with a to quote Langdon Wilson a good friend of mine a two ninety two Chevy and a fifty foot net you know <laughs> but uh, we had the idea that you would reduce the technology and that way you'd get more fish if more technology led to less fish. So it was kind of a technological solution or backing off from it to see what would happen. Well, that's, that is, those are two different plans. I mean, you can, you can go, it's a scale issue. You can go industrial and large, or you can go Arkansas and small. And in fact, as you've proven, there's profit in both, but there's more profit perhaps now in the changing world we're in, in small. Yeah, I mean, it's still, it's really difficult. You know, we can't even buy all the fish that Randy catches, and he's just one boat. There's global competition for fish. You can get fish everywhere. You can get haddock from Russia for $5 a pound or less for the restaurants. You know, so a lot of the fresh local haddock you see, it's not, but it tastes the same. It's frozen at sea. It's been flown around the world. But we, when we're, such, we're so small, we're on a small scale, we have to charge more. Mm-hmm. Then if we started doing high volume, then we're going against what we planned on doing to start with. We're back to an industrial model. Right, and, and let's look Then at, you deplete the resources. Right, and if you look at the Russian Hague, no one is bothering to calculate all the external costs that are not marked, are not built no. into the price. Or shipping it's, stuff to China to have it it's absurd, you right. know. Uh, buying bait in China and bringing bring it to the Gulf of Maine, just, yes. nobody's actually calculating the true cost. This is what's happening. Right. But if you, uh, and at the same time, the quality of your product improves mm-hmm. and people are willing to pay the price. They do. Have you ever thought of yourself as a visionary? I don't like to get too carried away with myself. <laughs> oh, too. Maybe I should teach me some lessons. I think if someone someone wants to listen to me, I'll talk. It's relentless. Oh, okay. So do you see yourself, Tony, as essentially an activist or a social activist in the sense that you're using photography as a a tool of activism and, and commentary? In this particular instance, yeah, I guess so. Um, I mean, like I said, I was inspired by Daring to Look, Dorothea Lange's book. I guess what was inspiring about that book was her quality of knowing her subjects. I, I think I have a problem with our tendency in storytelling now to be pretty superficial, to be pretty fast in, out. And I think my choice for this story was because it was in where I live. 
I come from the Berkshires of Massachusetts, which has gotten more and more diluted of its character. And there's a feeling, I mean, I was born in Maine and then grew up away and, and came back as fast as I could, as they say. But I think, I think there was an, the activism was around making sure that the story that I felt probably wasn't being told or certainly wasn't being told on the news was really an important one because I do think Glenn has a vision and maybe it's simply being relentless about doing the right thing. That mattered. I think that mattered to me to uh, tell that story. There's a photography as it has evolved in color and utility facility that everybody's a photographer, mm -hmm. which is great, actually, mm -hmm. because it's forcing people to look at things differently than they did before. Mm -hmm. One of the ways, however, that they look at them is they tend to romanticize what they see. But these photographs don't do that. These photographs are often without light or with, with light in, in a kind of harsh, harsh reality. Uh, the, the artificial light on the fishing boat. I wake up in the middle of the night and I look out across the bay and I can see the bright lights of a boat. It's not like seeing Venus or seeing a star in the night sky. It's out there looking at something that is harsh, cold, difficult to do, requires skill, and actually isn't romantic at all. I mean, it's just plain hard work and that, that's what I see in so many of your photographs. I think, I mean, people sometimes ask about why the black and white and to the title and this idea of being caught in time, I wanted to use the black and white to disorient people because I feel like, you know, we look at black and white and think, oh, that's past. And I wanted to sort of point towards now in a disorienting way. Right. And, and that the absence of color, mm -hmm. of course, makes cold things colder. Mm-hmm. Right, mm -hmm. it makes hard, you know, ice seem more dangerous. Mm -hmm. It makes dirt dirtier. Uh, some of these photographs of conditions on the boats. There's one here of, um, I guess it's Glenn standing on his boat by a winch, uh, and it's just there's so much texture in that photograph. Uh, I can't believe it. There's rust, there's dirt, there's slurry. <laughs> like we just got in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> there are bits of calluses. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. there's, there's just all kinds of stuff that's in that photograph. And so you can't romanticize it. You can, it's not possible to romanticize it. And yet there's another one here. I wish you'd talk about this one, which is um, one of the just the single line in the tackle. Oh, Yeah. Talk about that one a little bit, can you? What did you see when you saw that that image? You know, one of the one regret I have with this project is that at the time Randy Cushman was fishing and was willing to take me offshore, but didn't have room for me because they were still I don't know how long ago that stopped the government observers hmm. that were going out with them. So he had a crew member. There it is. He had a crew member and he had a government observer who was coming. So she had the other bunk. But he did say, you know, I'll be leaving the dock around 11 if you want to come down. So the, the image of the boat leaving at night is this same moment. But I, again, it was this, it's like the residue of human contact. I don't know, I find docks to be really evocative places in part because it's that intersection between the life lived ashore and that moment where suddenly you're separate you're separate, you're moving out into the dark, you're moving out into whatever kind of weather you're going to meet, whatever kind of fish you're going to find, whatever kind of circumstances. And we all, well, we don't all that necessarily viscerally know the terrors that can happen at sea, but if you have had any experience, there's a, a sense that it's that just feels like a huge portal. You know, it's a gap between this moment lived ashore, that moment setting I just want to describe this photograph a little bit because it's it's a hugely evocative piece of work. On the left, there's a door, and behind it, the light's on. So all you see of what is home or land is a sliver of light, and the door is shut. The other side of the photograph is absolute intense darkness. There is no nothing visible in it at all. So basically... It, it could be the gates of hell. And then you have this little triangle of dock 
there's a single pile, there's a line that's pretty tattered. Not so sure I want to put too much reliance on that line, but it's not tied around the pile. It's just been left as if something has gone. But that's all inherent in this photograph. So you can read so many elements within the, the occupation in the photograph. Do you think, Glenn, that Fresh Catch has changed the nature of uh, how we're going to essentially fish commercially into the future? I don't know. I mean, it's changed the landscape around here a little bit. We've created a market for something that really didn't have any market for. As far as, like I mentioned earlier, you see the things that popped up all over the place, CSS. So I think there's a lot more direct marketing, sort of, maybe not totally direct marketing, but there's even that. What it, what it meant to me, I think, was that people got the courage to actually try it, where before you just sold to somebody, it went on a truck, and then you waited two months for a check that was half what you thought it was going to be, if you got paid at all, <clears throat> if you didn't have to go chase them down with a baseball bat. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more. I mean, you saw it last year during the pandemic when the market, the lobster kind of dried up. You had guys on every street corner peddling lobsters. And they I don't know if we influenced it or not, but it seems like more people had the courage to actually go and try to do something on their own. As far as Fresh Catch changing anything, I mean, I think the biggest thing is maybe an interesting example of what you can do. If you put your mind to it. Yeah. Right. Not necessarily us changing it and turning it into something big that changes everything, but enabling more people to do something that they might not have tried to do and be successful at it. Do you think that part of the way you were drawn to this was because you were a ground fisherman, not a lobsterman? Yeah, probably, because we weren't making a lot of money. So, I mean, that was part of it. But it was also part seeing the fish go away and wanting to bring them back. And it wasn't just for us either. It was for the future. But in COVID, for example, with the lobster business uh, and the prices going down or demand going down, one of the reasons, as I understand it, was the sudden loss of the China market. So picking up and selling lobsters 7,000, 8,000 miles away takes out a fairly large part of your market share. Mm -hmm. And now what do you do? as globalization changes or may have reached its apex in terms of how we distribute goods around the world Mm -hmm. and what market demands are. And that works both ways, by the way, between China and the U.S., U.S. and China. But it may well be that those adjustments are not going to be made by choice. They're going to be made by by circumstance. And you did that. You were confronted with circumstance. Mm -hmm. And, And then, of course, lobstering has additional problems in both climate water temperature, gear issues, all that that kind of stuff, so that the conventions, it may get harder. I, I went lobster a little bit. Yeah. Out of a skiff. Never really liked it. So I didn't do it. I didn't, I didn't follow the money. I followed what I wanted to do. But a lot of it is in, in your photographs, uh, Tony, are also sort of the social aspects, the, the kitchen table, uh, the card playing. The, the women sitting around and picking. I, I knew a lot of the guys around town, you know, <laughs> that had been, and I heard the stories and talked to them. They helped us out mending nets and things like that at various times, mm-hmm. teaching us how to do different things. And uh, we we started going with a longtime fisherman on the first boat that we went on mm-hmm. and learned a lot from him. But uh, we were the first ones in our family. My father always had the dream of being a fisherman. He was a truck driver. Uh, And he bought a boat as a tax break. (laughs) Back when they did the 200-mile line, they were giving out money, hand over fist. Well, now we got to build up our fleet and wipe the fish out ourselves. (laughs) What it ended up being. I've always thought that incentive program that made it possible to turn a 30-foot fisherman into a 70 or 90-foot fisherman uh, was probably the silliest thing that ever happened. There's a lot of silly things that go on still. Yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about those? Give me one or two. I mean, that's a good example of it. I think you're seeing another one now with this uh, 
they're trying to industrialize the ocean in a different way with the wind turbines. And it's just going to be a short-lived mass, you know. Even if it lasts for 40 years, what's that amount to? It's going to disrupt the fishing grounds for pretty much ever. Well, the, the offshore fishing grounds, if there's no ground fish, then there's no, there's no fish to be caught. No I know. Fish. There's always that argument. But yeah, I don't yeah. believe that offshore wind turbines are going to be the answer. Have, have a solution. It has, you really have to take a stretch to get to that point. We are speaking today with Glenn Libby and Tony Small on fishing and fisheries as essential elements of the culture of Maine. I'm Peter Neal, host of Conversations from the Pointed Furs on WERU-FM 89.9 on your dial. Community Radio in Blue Hill, Maine. There's a part of this book that is very unusual. I was taken completely by surprise by by it and of itself, the honesty of it. It's called, the chapter called uh, Vampires. Mm-hmm. Tell me, would you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I was, at, I was in the hospital. I had a meld score of 38, which means my head was basically solid full of ammonia from my malfunctioning liver. Of autoimmune disease that was attacking my liver. And uh, if you hit 40, it's time to start digging a hole. <laughs> so I was in the hospital down in Boston and I told Glenn, bring the computer down. I got to work on the book. I could barely sit up. I'd just been to a what they call a group therapy session. And I went back and said, all right, I got to go back. I got to do some writing. That's when it started, the very first part of it. I, I was writing that basically in a state of delirium. But I, I, I read it afterwards and really liked it the way that it sounded, you know. So I added on to it, kept going with that. When you thought about it afterwards, did it reveal part of yourself that you just either... It was it was what was going through my mind at the time, and you didn't know, but you didn't know it was there because it's very different than what you would normally. Hit. Well, it, 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 I knew it was there because it was going through it like a record, like something playing over and over and over in my brain, and I just wrote it down. I captured it. Yeah, and it was going on for days, really weeks. Was it terrifying? Yeah, initially, it was for a little while, but. I was in. Uh, I was admitted to the hospital. I went to Penn Bay. Doctor Pierce said, "Go down and have a ultrasound of your liver." I thought it was lupus because I was diagnosed with lupus when I was nineteen. That's what we thought it was. He said, ah, "I think that's your liver." So I go down. They take an ultrasound, and the doctor comes back in tears. They're a woman doctor. She goes, "Well, we think you might only have like three months to live." <laughs> they were talking about they were going to put me in the Sussman house. And I, uh, my response was, okay, so what do we do now? <laughs> so it was a little bit scary, but I wasn't ready to give up. I want to read a piece or two if I can. Uh, here's just a couple of ones that I marked. Feelings, hurt, scared, thrilled, gratified, content, restless, well, uneasy, sick, tired, many more. We're back in the cocoon and it's still dark. Sleep comes again. The vampires have departed for a while. Lucid dreaming returns with a vengeance until the vampires come again. The lucid dreaming, ocean, fishing grounds, islands. That's poetry, my man. I don't know whether you want to admit to it or not, but that's what it is. Yeah. It's really powerful stuff. That was exactly what was going through my head at the time. Over and over and over, like a broken record. Do we all have those? Does every fisherman, does every artist have a lucid dream? I don't know. Seems artists deal with it all the time. That's part of making art, would be to sort of reveal your lucid dreams, make lucid your dreams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had a conversation at at one point, because Glenn sent me what he'd started, and he's like, do I keep going down this road for the book? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> definitely. And I, for two reasons, one being that it was poetic 
and I thought it was beautiful and pertinent. And it comes towards the end of the book also because I feel like I wanted for the book to contain to contain some of the depth, I think, of Glenn's relentlessness. It is who he is, and I think it's so easy to just sort of, you know, like he was saying, like he's just followed what he wanted to do, and I think sometimes we we stop short of telling the story of the sacrifice or actually even just revealing what it means to, to give your all to something, and I felt like that piece revealed both Glenn's relentlessness as well as his commitment to what he was trying to will and work towards creating. And I think it's artistic, but I think, I don't know, I, I would bet there are an awful lot of fishermen who've had moments like that. Yeah, I didn't it, I didn't have to force it at all. Yeah. That, that just came out. I, I didn't have to think about it. <laughs> it just, yeah. that was the easiest part of the book to write. Hmm. But, you, you know, sometimes uh, fishing is described as the most boring thing on earth, that you're just you know, standing out there looking at an endless landscape, going through the same motions and routines over and over and over again, and really the only thing that distracts you is listening to your buddies on the radio. Then the northern lights come out. And then the northern lights come out. Thank you so much. <laughs> and that's a different thing, isn't it? And nobody's yeah. immune to that, are they? No. Hardest, most grouchy, most difficult fishermen would still melt. I think so. Before the northern lights. Yeah. And the night sky. You haven't seen them until you've seen them offshore. Mm. Yeah. I believe that. Yeah. yeah. So you are romantic after all. I guess so. <laughs> and fishing is romantic. I think, well, here's what I think of. I think there is a quality of connection to environment that fishermen hold, possess, and we have gotten so removed. We're just layer upon layer upon layer, removing ourselves from, you know, where our food comes from, what it takes to actually grow food, what it takes to grow and sustain ourselves. And I think, I think the devotion fishermen, at least the fishermen I know, have to the environment in which they work and the, there, there's magic in it. There's magic in it, and I think if they get to have that kind of relationship with an environment and that environment actually provides for them, that's kind of a thing that not a lot of people get to experience any longer. Well, isn't that comparable to, for example, what indigenous people talk about in their relationship with nature? Yeah. yeah. Or isn't that comparable to even what many environmentalists and environmental organizations espouses their missions? Espouses their mm-hmm. missions, Sure. So why would it not all be a kind of opportunity for a worldview change with, with real consequence on the ground, which justifies perhaps revising or reinventing how we uh, encounter the sea? And it becomes conservation through strategic choices for quality of life and well-being. Well, there's been a lot of that with the regulation that's gone on. I, I spent three years on the New England Council, I don't know if I had much of an impact because you don't, you know, within in three years, that's like the learning part. But if you, you get a nine-year thing, if you get reappointed, and uh, if I did, probably Fresh Catch wouldn't exist because mm-hmm. wouldn't have time for it. But uh, there's been some really meaningful changes as far as quota and things like that. You know, how many fish can be taken out. There's a good handle on it now where there never was. And there was a lot of frustration and back and forth. But uh, I think that that's made a difference. Uh, you know, before it was like <laughs> the same old thing. Oh, I got to put us out of business. And you keep hearing that. But, uh, you know, you've got you to leave something. What's the exhibit on cod fishing? comparing cod fishing in the Scandinavian countries with cod fishing in the North Atlantic. Yeah. And um, the exhibit was to look at not only the fishing statistics, but also the, the villages, the towns, and the traditions. And we had folklorists come and look. And we couldn't find even artifacts in places in Newfoundland 
the coastal towns in Newfoundland, we couldn't find any memory of fishing. The people had all left. Uh, the artifacts were abandoned as symbols of defeat. Hmm. Um, and there was no viability to the, to the traditions until those small villages started to get resettled by artists coming from away, responding to the natural conditions differently, and being able to revitalize those those towns. When you went to Scandinavian countries, in Norway, for example, all those little coastal towns up the coast of Norway had small little maritime museums, cod fishing museums. They still were fishing for cod. And they still had, until the late 90s, factories that were still processing cod, bacalao for the European market, and oil. And the difference simply was quotas, self-limited, cooperative self-limits, where in Norway they said we'll have seasons and we'll have limits, and in the United States we said we will fish 24-7, 365 days of the year, and we will take everything that we possibly can. And that's the difference between a tradition and an economy that, and, a, and, a, and a social community that survived and ones that did and I think that's where we are today. I think we're in, in a place where that kind of turning of the wheel could happen again. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah. Do you see it? I mean, Port Clyde is a perfectly interesting example oh, yeah. of that. I, mean, I think the wheel never stops turning. Mm-hmm. You know, I, don't, I never see an end. It's just a continuation of something. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have to look like it did before. Right. Hopefully it won't, because right. that's not changing at all. Right. I mean, I always tell I always told people, don't worry about catching what you wish there was. Catch what there is, you know, and try to find a way to make that work. Yeah. So let's, we're getting on in time here. Let me just read one more thing from the book and see. Uh, learning, this is one from one of your essays, Glenn, learning is possibly the only wealth there is. Attach a desire to effect change that contributes to the greater good by creating a new reality that is both good economically and sustainable, and you now have a mission. That's different. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. <laughs> and working at sea is a, is a learning experience. There's a wealth of knowledge that's not just what you can do with your hands. Everything is. I was, I was thinking about... Uh... What happens when you die, when I wrote that, about learning? What are you going to take with you if you go to heaven, so to speak? You're not going to take money. You're going to take things. You'll take what you learned. That's what I was thinking of. Well, also, you could leave what you've learned behind. If there's a legacy legacy in, in Port Clyde Fresh Catch or a legacy in a collection of photographs, is a book. It's a book, <laughs> and is a powerful thing to leave behind. Yeah. Uh, have you not actually the two of you sort of created a document of how change can be enabled from within, um, and not necessarily imposed from the outside, but if you take responsibility or sustainability for for sustainability and connects to a rewarding way of life, isn't that something that we devoutly to be wished in this time and space? In this place, in this time, yeah. no. I think that's what drew me to, I mean, I was so excited reading about what Glenn was doing and what the other fishermen in Port Clyde had decided to do. And, you know, I, th- I, I think recognizing that they had come to a point in time where they said, guess what, this isn't working, so we have to create the change we want to be in the world. And isn't that's espoused all the time, but I think watching it happen and watching what's I mean Glenn pivoting Glenn pivots a lot and I I do think he's a bit dizzy honestly like the moving between you know species shrimp disappearing crab surfacing like every time I go in there's something new yeah guys disappearing some of them died some of them died yeah like there's the ability to sort of respond to the environment of what, each, what are we going to sell of next? Day. Yeah. But what I think is what is magic about what you've done is that it's not it's not about what are we going to sell. Yes, it is what we're going to sell, but there's a different quality of engagement with 
the world. Yeah, I'm, I think we're both really proud of, of how it came together and how it spoke to what I wanted to honor and what I saw and what he was doing and, and give a space for him to say, this is what we've done and this is what we're trying. And I think the ability to say, no, oh, that didn't work, you know, like I'm going to try this next time is also huge. Like I just don't think we tell those stories much. Or if we do, we don't do it well enough. Right. Some, some of them were, some of the guys, the original guys, <laughs> I remember they, we were t- sitting around talking about we're, we're going to process our own shrimp. And I remember saying, you guys really want to do this? Because I could see the job, how monstrous it was. Oh, yeah, we want to do it. And what happened was a lot of them ended up dropping out because they expected something easy. And it's still not easy after a long time. But it's worth it. I enjoy it. Do you sense young people coming in into fishing? I think they will. But will or are already? Uh, most, most everybody now wants to go lobster because that's where the money is. But young people are there. No, I, I see on the water... Lots of young men, often young women, and women uh, out there with small skiffs, certain yeah. number of fish, oh, yeah. making a living, yeah. working hard. Uh, I wonder if it's uh, you know the larger boats are seeing that as well, or whether that the the attitudes that those young people bring to the situation may be part of the change. Hmm. We certainly see it in shellfish, where you have all these young farmers coming in and in, in oysters, mm-hmm. uh, seaweeds eels, new new species, new ways of harvesting, new ways to add value, new ways to distribute and market. And they're starting up with high ambition and expectations to be able to live on the value of their work. I mean, it's not nature. Uh, there's plenty out there. I mean, there's, there, there seems to me there's plenty to be had. Oh, yeah. It's the having it that's the challenge. It's getting it and putting all the pieces together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a hard part. What would you say to a young fisherman who came up to you and said, you know? I'd say, what do you want to, what do, you want to do? You hire him? You know. Uh, I don't go fishing anymore, so, you know. If they want to pick crab meat, sure. <laughs> They'll come work for me. Mm-hmm. I, I've been fortunate to pick up with two or three new people lately. But... Uh, I don't know if they'll be here in the summertime. Mm-hmm. They're here now, mm-hmm. which is good. Any last things to say, Tony? Do you have any sort of conclusions of as you look back on the experience? Your book is about sold out. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, this interview will help. You will mm-hmm. sell them all out. Mm-hmm. I sold all mine. You did. Well, there you, you go. Did, yeah. Well, you're a natural marketer. Now. I made twenty bucks. You're in sales. Excellent. <laughs> You're a salesman, not a fisherman. Well, I got a store, too. He does, yeah. He's got a storefront. Uh, That helps. Yeah, I always manage to talk about the book if there's a conversation starting out. Yeah. Yeah. If you know, if you really want to know all about this place. Buy that book. Yeah, quit bugging me and buy the book. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, I guess I'd say this. When we when we decided we were going to publish and and we had the assistance of of Margot and Rob from Rackline, we did have a very decided conversation about we were going to print the book and we weren't going to put it on Amazon. We wanted to sell the book the way we felt like we both worked in the world, that it was an artisanal project and it, we deserved whatever, whatever there was to come back from the effort. We put in a lot of hours making it happen. Um, And, you know, so it's interesting. It's, it's interesting to try and live by that, but I, I don't know. I'm quite proud of, of the book. And periodically we joke about book number two. And I don't know, maybe we're both traumatized by the effort. I don't think so. I think we're just tired. I don't have any time for anything now. Yeah. Glenn's busy. I've been busy. but That's not a bad thing, though. It's not a bad thing. That's a wonderful thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that probably is as good a healing thing as you've got going with, as medicine. No, I'm still waiting for organ transplant. Mm-hmm. You know, uh-huh. I'm, I'm, well, as they say, holding a turn right now. <laughs> holding a turn. Mm-hmm. 
That's as good as uh, phrase as any. Stable is another word for that. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, I like, let's end. Holding a turn. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Glenn. Thanks oh, for your time. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. My guests today have been Glenn Libby and Tony Small discussing their collection of essays and photographs, Caught, Time, Place, Fish, available through Port Clyde Fresh Catch or at antoniasmall.com. Fishing is central to the spirit of Maine, specific in place, vital in our time, and if sustained through respect and best practice, key to our future. I'm Peter Neal, host of Conversations from the Pointed Furs. This edition and all previous conversations can be found archived on WERU-FM 89.9 on your dial, Community Radio in Blue Hill, Maine. My guest next time will be William Carpenter, author and professor at the College of the Atlantic since its founding. We will be discussing his new novel, Silence, a portrayal of the aftermath of war and a veteran search for redemption and peace on an island in Maine. You've been tuned in to Conversations from the Pointed Furs, Elite Island Books audio project, produced by Trisha Badger, theme by Casey Neal for Mock Turtle Music, hosted by Peter Neal. Visit pointedfurs.org for more information and find us on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Maine Media Workshops and College, presenting conceptual photographer Aileen Smithson discussing her book, Fugue State, in the Alumni Lecture Series on Thursday, January 13th from 5 to 6 p.m. Registration at mainmedia.edu slash lectures. Welcome to 2021 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. No country has the right to dictate borders to bully smaller countries, to intimidate, to coerce, to pursue their own interests. State Department spokesman Ned Price says the U.S. wants to peacefully resolve the conflict in Ukraine, where Russia has amassed troops, prompting fears of a military invasion. President Joe Biden is expected to speak by phone today to Russian President Vladimir Putin at the Kremlin's request. Foreign policy expert Stephen Pfeiffer with the Brookings Institution believes diplomacy could help defuse the situation. It would be better to talk than to have what could turn out to be the biggest land war in Europe since World War II breakout. Russia contends the troops are there for military exercises and denies plans to invade, which Pfeiffer says is possible. I tend to think that this is more towards bluff than an actual intention for a real invasion, because I calculate the cost as significant for Moscow. But Mr. Putin has his own logic. Biden already warned Putin the U.S. and European allies will respond with economic sanctions and military support should Russia invade. A group of former executive branch lawyers asked the Supreme Court Wednesday to reject former President Donald Trump's efforts to block his records from the House Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack, arguing the need to pursue facts outweighs Trump's claims of executive privilege. New polling shows House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has a nearly 50 percent job approval rating among independents putting the California Republican eight percentage points ahead of President Joe Biden. The Gallup poll also found McCarthy's overall approval slightly higher than Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. McCarthy is among those predicting a red wave in 2022, as the GOP needs just five seats to regain the House majority it lost in 2018. It's no longer will the competition of competitive seats be small. It'll be more than 70 Democrats that would be competitive. It could be one of the biggest election losses for Democrats. 23 House Democrats are retiring or running for another office in 2022, compared to 13 Republicans. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky says the current weekly average of new COVID cases is roughly 240,000 cases per day, up 60% over last week. The rapid increase in cases we are seeing across the country is in large part a reflection of the exceptionally transmissible Omicron variant. Meanwhile, the White House is considering a potential vaccine mandate for domestic travel. A federal jury in New York found Ghislaine Maxwell guilty on five of six counts related to her role in Jeffrey Epstein's sexual abuse of minor girls. Epstein killed himself in prison in 2019, one month after a federal indictment on sex trafficking charges. Maxwell, his confidant and former girlfriend, was arrested a year later. 
The six-year-old faces up to 65 years in prison. I'm Mary Sherman for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Find our A-Trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Truth Tellers, the documentary about Robert Shetterly's Americans Who Tell the Truth, screening at the Lincoln Theater in Damariscotta on Thursday, January 14th at 7 p.m. Shetterly and